I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Father God, we thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, that you help us, Lord, to renew our minds, to wash our minds, Lord, in your word. May it be that as we come to your word this morning, that it be a blessing to your people, Lord, that you would open up our hearts, our minds, our ears, that we might hear your word, and Lord, that it might be edifying to us, that your church would grow, Lord, both in knowledge and understanding and wisdom and discernment, but Lord, also we pray numerically. May you add to this church, Lord, those that are being saved and those that are hungry for the truth of your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me this morning to deliver your word to your people, Lord, that I would be challenged, that I would be changed, that I would be pointed to by the word and my heart would be stirred and dealt with. And I ask that for my brothers and sisters this morning. Lord, we ask it for your glory. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at John chapter 2. And verses 13 through 22, we'll probably look at every individual verse, but we're looking at the context in which it's in. Of course, this is early in Jesus' ministry. Malachi 3 verse 1 reads this way. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here in this chapter and verse 1 of chapter 3 of Malachi, the introduction of the arrival of John the Baptist who would prepare the way and the Messiah himself is prophesied. Many hundreds of years, maybe I think they said that there was perhaps around 400 years between the end of Malachi to Jesus walking the earth as Messiah. That 400 years, that may, if that's, if that's uh, corrected by anybody, then let me know. But I, I think it's somewhere around there. So this is, this is prophesied all those years before. But I want you to note how we are told that the Lord will suddenly come to his temple. Suddenly. See, this, what we've read in John chapter 2, as I've said just previously, is very early in Jesus' ministry. And although doubtless he had already gained some reputation, perhaps as a prophet maybe, he would have hardly been recognised by many to be the long-awaited Messiah at this time. Maybe some of his closest friends, maybe those disciples that he had called already, who had attended with him at the, uh, the wedding at Cana, where he turned the water into wine. Perhaps they saw, perhaps they already believed, or at least were on their way. But he would have been seen as probably a prophet of God. I don't know that many would have denied that, at least without lying. But not many would have really acknowledged him or seen him to be or accepted him to be the Messiah at this time. So after shortly turning water into wine and spending a short time in Capernaum, Jesus went up to Jerusalem with his disciples 
for the Passover. This is the first record of Passover of John's Gospel. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 says, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Again in Matthew 5.17 says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfil. So here we have this Passover feast. And Jesus, just as with any other Jewish male, was required to appear at this feast. And the reason why I have just read those two verses is that it shows that he came to do and to fulfil the law. So if he was required as a Jewish man to go up to Passover, then he was going to do it. He came to fulfil the law, every jot and tittle. And so he did that. He went up to the Passover. He went to appear at this feast. He came to fulfil all righteousness. Malachi prophesies that the Lord will come suddenly to his temple. And here we have it. Here this carpenter from Nazareth with his handful of followers suddenly entered the temple. As previously noted, according to Josephus, you probably remember this when I was preaching through those ten verses of Acts chapter 2. I mentioned at the time, because that was a Passover feast when Pentecost happened. It was a, it was a feast there and then there were at least, I think, two million people around at the time in Jerusalem. Now again, I don't know if you've seen or been to Jerusalem. It's quite a big city. But two million people there all gathered around the temple. There would have been a lot of people all crowded around. But there he was, this, this, this carpenter, who enters the temple and there is two million plus people in Jerusalem for the Passover. So there's Jesus and his followers, just a handful, just a few among many, mingling in and out of the crowds unnoticed. But not for long, as we're about to see. It says in this context here that he found in the temple, verse 14, John 2, verse 14, he found in the temple. John Gill notes, not in the holy place itself. So he said he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves. Where? Whereabouts in the temple? What do we understand of the temple? Well, John Gill says that it wasn't in the holy place itself, nor in the court of the priests, where the sacrifices were usually offered, nor in the court which is for the women, nor in the court of the Israelites, where the people worship, but in the court of the Gentiles, or the outward court. Even all that space of ground which was between the wall, which divided the whole from the common ground, and the buildings of the temple, and which was open to the air. For the whole sacred enclosure, or all within the wall, went by the name of the temple, into this all strangers might come. This is where it was. This is where they were selling these things. In the Gentile court where there was no roof. Not in the holy place. 
bit outside of it, but it was all class. Everything within these walls was class as the temple. It says in that verse, those who sold, it says, He found in the temple those who sold oxen, sheep, and doves, and the money changers. What's it say? Doing business. They were doing business. Now, on my tour of Israel, one of the visits was to the town of Bethlehem. We had to go through a security check that uh, separates Israel from the West Bank. And once in Bethlehem, which is now part of the state of Palestine, I noticed, my brother noticed, and the people there probably noticed, that there was like stall after stall, merchant after merchant selling religious paraphernalia. Crosses, even camel skin Bible covers. Mm -hmm. Menorahs, items with Jesus' name on them, for example. Lots of things relating to Jesus. Lots of things relating to God and the Bible and Jewish culture. And it's interesting, isn't it, that with all the trouble and all the fighting and the hatred between Israel and Palestine, that I saw the hypocrisy of all of that. Even within Israel itself, a nation which has still, in the main, rejected Christ as their Messiah. They take advantage and make merchandise and no doubt immense profit from that which they outright deny to be the truth. They were making a business. These people are making a business of profiting out of these things. So this what we're reading here, there are similarities, but this is a larger and more blasphemous way in what Jesus found happening in his father's house. The Palestine and Israel, in that sense, when I saw what they were doing, it's not the father's house. They were just making money out of God. But here, this was inside the temple, inside what Jesus termed his father's house. They had made the commands of God to bring sacrifice before him into a money-making business. Not outside, but inside the temple itself. This is a holy place. A place of worship. A place of thanksgiving. A place of obedience to the living God. Albert Barnes comments, he showed that his great regard, speaking of Jesus Christ, he showed that his great regard was for the pure worship of his Father. And one great design of his coming was to reform the abuses which had crept into that worship and to bring man to a proper regard for the glory of God. That's what he did it for, that's what made him angry. His regard was for his father and the worship of his father. And he wanted to set it right. This is my father's house and in this house he will be worshipped properly. Remember, we'll get to it uh, maybe uh, at some point in the next few months in John chapter 4. You shall worship him in spirit and truth. 
But what did he do then? He was angry. He saw this going on. He saw them making a mockery and abusing the worship of the temple. He says this. He made a whip of cords. When he made a whip of cords. We've got to understand something here, friends. That Jesus never simply reacted in anger, as you and I are inclined to do. He didn't want to, he didn't pick something up in anger and make something of it so that he could go and get revenge and express his hatred towards them and to, to beat them into submission. You see, Jesus acted in righteous indignation, pure righteous indignation, godly righteous indignation and he did this against the defilement and the abuse of the right use of God's house there's different ideas as to what was actually used to make this whip some people have said that it could possibly be the hides of cattle slain from the sacrifices or also inclusive it may be possible that it was twisted reeds or rushes that were strewn around on the floor but nevertheless, whatever it was, he carefully made this whip of cords. It's also important to note that there is no reference that Jesus actually hit anybody with this whip. It wasn't his intention. It says he drove them out. It doesn't say he went and he hit anybody. There was no violence in that sense. just said that he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the auction and he poured out the, ch uh, the changes money and he overturned the tables. See this is really quite startling. If you think about it, if you look at what's happening, he reveals the power of Christ. You might say, well, why? Why does it reveal his power? Well, surely, firstly, no man is really going to fear such a small weapon of a whip made of rushes so much that they all ran from Jesus, terrified. Somebody comes and wants to hit you with a piece of grass, may come keen. It's not going to terrify you, though, is it? And yet, it says he drove them all out. Remember the sort of numbers milling around and how bustling this area of merchandisers and merchants must have been. See, here we see in action the authority that the Son of God has. That one man could drive out so many with a grass whip seems very unlikely. But one in whom the fullness of deity dwells. One of supreme power. One of the utmost authority. The only begotten of the Father. He is limitless. Note how at times people plotted to kill him. 
Surely you remember. Yet he walked through the crowd unharmed because his time had not yet come. What about in the garden at the time of his passion when he responded, I am he, and the soldiers all fell backwards upon themselves? The authority, the power, even three words of the Son of God, I am he. And they were all strewn on the floor. Drive them out, he did. Even the temple guards were powerless to stop what was happening. They had guards in the temple. And yet even they didn't stop him. This one man, this one carpenter from Nazareth with his grass whip. But he drove them out. Reminds me of Jude 3. Paul says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. Is this not what was Jesus was doing? He was contending for the honour and the worship and the rightful praise of God, his Father in his house. He was contending. So he does this. And all the people run out. He, he drives out the oxen. Lets them out of their cages. Tells them to take away those birds that were perhaps in little cages. Tells them to get rid of them. Move them. Get them out of here. But then the Jews come. They say to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? And there is no denial there, if you see, in this question. They don't turn around to him and say, We haven't made the, the Lord's house a den of merchandise. No denial. They don't deny the fact that's what they're doing. They just turn to him and say, well, what sign do you show me? That you, do you have the authority to do these things? There was neither no violence threatened against Jesus here <laughs> as at other times when the threats were made to stone him, for example, or to throw him from the top of the cliff. They merely asked this question. The power that drove them out, friends, also restrained them, who so often talked in corners of their desire to destroy him. The power that drove them out is also the power that restrained them from acting as men would act. Instead, they seek a sign from him in order to show his authority for doing what he had done. Remember this. Jesus is the greatest teacher. There's ever been. Since the day. This earth was created. And yet. As far as Jewish education was concerned. He was unschooled. 
He held no position amongst the priests or the scribes and the Pharisees, which explains why they so often asked, by what authority do you do these things? Think of Paul and his vendetta against Christ and his church, his violent persecution of it, how he sought authority in the form of letters and to, uh, from the synagogue, letters from the synagogue to arrest and imprison anyone he found belonging to the way, as it was known. It was called the way. That's what Paul did. He went to the synagogue and he got the authority of the chief priests, the Pharisees, gave them letters that he might go and say, here's my authority for doing what I'm doing. So they said to Jesus, well, what, what authority do you have? Who has given you the authority to do such things? In their eyes, you see, Jesus had no authority to do what he did. When at Simon the leper's house, as the woman washed Jesus' feet with tears and anointed him with costly oil, Simon said, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. He questioned the very idea that Jesus was sent from God. If he had been, surely he would know that according to the law being touched by such a sinner would make one unclean. Therefore, he must not be a true prophet. So here the Jews wanted to test him again. Are you from God as you say? And are you acting on his authority? Show us a sign. Show us some miracle to prove yourself. Again, we see, don't we, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 22, for the Jews request a sign. Gentiles or the Greeks seek after wisdom or philosophy. Jews always demand a sign. Jesus also stated in Matthew 16, verse 4, that it is a wicked and adulterous and perverse generation that seeks after a sign. Scripture then tells us, and the disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house has eaten the other. The disciples remembered this. Remembered it from where? The reference is made to Psalm 69, verse 9, which is in itself a very messianic psalm. And it has many references made to it on the New Testament, such as John 15, 25, which says, But this happened, that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. That's stated in Psalm 69. And also again in John 15, 25, in fulfilment of that prophecy, they hated me without a cause, of course, speaking of the Messiah. I want to read to you uh, quite a, a, a chunk from uh, a commentator called John Gill. I reference him quite often. Such was Christ's regard to his father's house, and which was typical of the church of God. 
and such his concern for his honour, ordinances and worship, that when he saw the merchandise that was carried on in the temple, his zeal, which was a true and hearty affection for God, and was according to knowledge, was stirred up in him. And to such a degree that it was like a consuming fire within him that ate up his spirit, so that he could not forbear giving it vent and expressing it in the manner he did by driving those traders out of it. Phineas and Elias were in their zeal, as well as other things, types of Christ. And in the spirit and power of the latter he came. And Christ not only expressed a zeal for the house of God, the place of religious worship, but for the church and people of God. Whose salvation, sorry I missed a line, the place of religious worship for the church and the people of God, whose salvation he must earnestly desire and most zealously pursue. He showed his strong and affectionate regard to it by his suretyship engagements for them, by his assumption of their nature, by his ardent desire to accomplish it, and by his voluntary and cheerful submission to death on account of it. And such was his zeal for it, they ate him up. It inflamed his spirit and affections, consumed his time and strength, and at last his life. And he also showed a zeal for the discipline of God's house, by his severe reflections on human traditions, by asserting the spirituality of worship, by commanding a strict regard to divine institutions, and by sharply inveighing against the sins of professors of religion. And he discovered a warm, a warm zeal for the truths of the gospel, by a lively and powerful preaching of them. By his constancy, by the many fatiguing journeys he took for that purpose, by the dangers he exposed himself to by it, and by the care he took to free the gospel from prejudice and calumnies. And it becomes us, in imitation of our great master, to be zealous for his truths and ordinances, and for the discipline of his house, and not bear with either the erroneous principles or the bad practices of wicked men. Once again, I refer to Jude 3. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. I want to read to you an email that I received this week. Hi Russ, I wondered whether we might connect with regards to your outreach plans for this year. I am, excuse me, I am a professional comedy magician seeking to use the performing arts as a tool for engaging with people outside of the church. Described by Miranda Hart as such fun, I regularly perform in a number of contexts, from the comedy club to the cathedral, and travel right across the UK in doing so. 
If I can help to build a bridge to those in your community, bringing lots of laughter in the process, and ultimately pointing them towards Jesus, then I'd love to work with you to make that happen. Now, in reading that, I don't want to or wish to focus particularly on the individual who sent this to me, but just on how far the church worldwide has fallen from the seriousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Using comedy to build a bridge in our community. Ultimately, pointing them to Jesus. Isn't Jesus Christ himself the bridge? The mediator between God and man? Shouldn't the Lord Jesus Christ be the main focus? Rather than a program full of laughs and fun before pointing them toward Jesus? See, the Lord Jesus Christ is everything. He isn't a sideshow or a supporting act. He is the Son of the Most High God. He is the Saviour of His people. He is the Creator and the Maintainer of all things. He is life itself. For all that lives has life from him. And all that exists, exists because he made it. Everything and everyone belong to him. The immense power of the sun. When I was kind of preparing this, it was on one of these hot days and I'd been outside with a dog and I was sat on the sun lounge for like ten minutes and the searing heat of the sun on my skin was just... I couldn't be out there that long. And I just thought about it. The immense power of the sun. That it's that far away and yet it's burning me here. Light years away. Yeah. Immensity. But the immense power of the sun is but a fragment of the power of God. The church should be worshipping and teaching about him rightly. Are we saddened? Are we grieved at the lack of true biblical preaching in the church today? We can concentrate on you. We can, we can all say, well, we're all right here. And we're just one local church. The church worldwide does it sadden us and grieve us to know that there is this extreme lack of biblical preaching in the church? Are we not appalled at the nightclub scenes that pass for worship? <coughs> and the motivational, humanistic, ear-tickling sermons that are lifted up as God's word? The magicians that want to entertain you and make you laugh and make you have a good time, make you put you at ease and make you feel comfortable, and then say, Oh, look, but, but here's Jesus. 
Can you imagine telling somebody who's just laughed their heads off at comedy, been awed by the illusions of so-called magic, and then just to turn around them and tell them they're a sinner, that they're wicked, that without God they're destined to an eternity of torment and terror. Come on. If you're going to get people into church that way, friends, if you're going to entertain people in, you're going to need to keep them entertained. We're not about entertaining people. We're about preaching truth. The question is, does that provoke me? Does it stir me? Zeal. For thine house has eaten me up. Has it consumed you? Has it consumed me? Am I zealous for the house of God? Are you zealous for the house of God? Or is it just a sideshow to you? Is it just that little bit of your life where you say Sunday's come around again and it's church time? Or is there a zeal and a burden and an ache in your soul because you know that you know that you know that the church so-called believers, so-called preachers, so-called pastors are out there deceiving myriads of people. It's stuff like I've already repeated. Are we even able, friends? Now this is a question. Are we even able to discern good from bad and bad from good within the church? Yeah. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. For he is a babe. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. What type of food are you on? says here that if we're on milk, which, again, if we're young believers, if we're new to the faith, then that's to be expected. But what about if we're not new believers? What about if we profess to have believed for many years and yet we still know barely nothing of the Scriptures or of the doctrines of Christ? And we're still drinking that milk and remain unskilled. solid food belongs to those who are of full age and those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil can you discern good teaching in the church of Christ or are you taken away by the simplicity and the entertainment or even just watery, milky teaching that may itch and scratch ears 
I think I said a couple of weeks ago, Satan, via the world and its system, wants to destroy Christ and his church. And he will not stop until he is cast into the lake of fire. He infiltrates the church through ungodly, deceitful leaders who lead people astray by teaching heresies, subtly making God to be a genie in a lamp, who is there to sort out men's problems, give them a good life, teaching sin and repentance has all but disappeared in favour of entertaining the crowds with fun and magic tricks. Friends, we are in a war. Yeah. Saying to Stephen there earlier on, he was saying, Have you ever thought about moving to Finland? I said, Well, I've been asked by the family there, but no. I said, What's there for me? And he was saying about that. This country is becoming just horrible. Speaking about the wickedness of men in probably the football arena hooligans that just go and watch football to cause trouble. Saying this country's becoming worse and worse and worse. And I said to him, yeah, but it's everywhere. Here, Finland, wherever it is. Darkness and wickedness. And it's not going to get better. There is a war on truth and righteousness. The world is plummeting towards or down the highway to hell. And the gospel needs to be preached. Because why? It is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power to save. It's the power to heal. It's the power to deliver. So what does it mean if the church isn't preaching it? Is anybody being saved? Is anybody being healed? Is anybody being delivered? Is anybody truly coming to know Christ in these places? Or are they all deceived into believing they're something that they're not? It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. But it is within the church herself where false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, teaching doctrines of demons, making it a place of merchandise and profit where much of the danger lies. So we ought then to a matter of urgency as a priority. We ought to listen to the words of Paul as he urges Timothy to be diligent, to present yourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. This is again, all comes back to the truth of the Word of God. How can we? Or how can the Bible, how can this Word of God be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path if, if we don't frequent it? How can we have a zeal for truth if we don't know what the truth is? Do you stand before the metaphorical Pilate, as it were? Are you like him? Do you stand before Jesus like Pilate and say, what is truth? And he stood right in front of you. 
Because that's what many people do. We have this word of God here, friends. Most of the time, for many of us, it's there. And there I am saying, what is truth? It's right in front of me. How am I going to be able to speak the truth? Everybody else, I don't know for myself. The question is, does this zeal burn you up? Zeal for God's house, not just here. Zeal for truth. Zeal for people that God is drawing to himself. See, the world is still dead. Jesus said, didn't he? We must work while it is still there. For well, night is coming when no man can work. It's still day. We're still alive. We still have the gospel of that in our fingertips and in our mouths. And this gospel needs to be preached. See, Jesus, oh, the Lord Jesus, he saw it, didn't he? He saw the house of God. He saw the wickedness in it. And he did something about it. He went in and he cleared it. And he said this. This is how the, 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 the house of the Lord needs to be. Proper worship, truth, the love of God. Not making it merchandise, not selling things, not putting coffee shops in them. Not making entertainment. But to preach the unadulterated word of God, which is the power of God unto salvation. Have I got that zeal? Have you got that zeal? Mm -hmm. That's my question for you today. <coughs> Do you zealously love the house of God and its truth? And if so, who are you telling? There are so many people in this place here. And I'm thinking almost every day, how can we reach them? How can we reach them? pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the symbol, the, well, the actual happening of the way that you cleansed the temple on that day, the beginning of the ministry. How you righteously and perfectly made a whip of cords and drove out that which was wicked from your house. Lord, we pray today, would you drive out that which is wicked in your church today. Yeah. And Lord, one of the things is that this happened twice. At the beginning of your ministry and at the end. And it shows us, just goes to show us that people do not learn. Had to do it again. Lord, help us, we pray here, to maintain the truth of your word. To maintain the truth that is in Christ Jesus and him alone. Lord, will you protect us from ever falling into error. Will you protect us, Lord, from ever teaching blasphemy? And will you make us a beacon of light in this community, a city set on a hill? Lord, will you make us individually lights of this world and as a corporate church? Beacon of light, oh God. Lord, if we have neglected these things, if we neglect your word, if we neglect prayer, which 
No doubt all of us, one way, shape or form, will say that we have when we do. Stir us up, we pray, Lord. Stir us up. That we might love your word, that we might love you, that we, we might say with Paul, oh, that I might know him. That I might know him. That I might be joined with him in his resurrection. Lord, we long for that day. We say Maranatha in this wicked world, but we're here. And while it is still day, I ask, stir us up, empower us, give us the gift that we need to reach our community. Give us the zeal for your house. Lord, may it not be that we become couch Christians. We sit twiddling our thumbs, wait for heaven. Lord, we need to get busy living, else we need to get busy dying. Lord, cause us to live in the power of the gospel of Christ, in this our generation. Lord, use us and use this place, we pray. Ultimately, for the glory of your great name. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.